0: This is episode number 18 of the Polyglot Developer Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Raboy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. If you've been subscribed to this podcast for a while now, you'll know that I've done several episodes on mobile application development. This time around, we're going to do something different. We're going to look at something that's been getting a lot of buzz lately. We're going to look at progressive web applications, or PWAs, or as what I'm going to jokingly call it throughout this episode, PWAS. With me on this episode, I have Tara Maniksik, who's a very talented JavaScript developer who actually specializes a lot in progressive web applications. We're going to learn about what progressive web apps are and how they differ from other common mobile application development approaches. With that said, enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. I'm with Tara Moniksik, and we're here to talk about PWA's, so progressive web applications. And uh, we're going to be silly about it. We're going to be, we're going to be calling it PWA's throughout the, the whole podcast. Um, but it is progressive web apps. Um, but before we get into that, I want to give Tara a chance to introduce herself.
1: Hi, I am Tara, I'm very excited to be here with Nick today and with all of you. Uh, I am actually a developer advocate at um, Progress and I work on the Kenda UI team working with UI components. And um, basically, I got really interested in progressive web apps And um, have been using them a lot because I I believe that I'm sure we'll go into this further, but that they make your web apps much more um, accessible and reliable. And with all of the work that especially I've been doing on progressive web apps with speaking on them and writing about them and using them, um, it's kind of how I had my path to become a Google developer expert in web technologies. uh, Because... I'm very excited <laughs> about this Google uh, Google's kind of push for progressive web apps. So um, that kind of sums me up on my professional side. I speak around the world. Thankfully, I'm very grateful for all the opportunities to speak. Um, I also write blog posts and do um, video series for Kenda UI and technology surrounding um, different React and Vue and Angular and just web in general. And then I also, in my free time, um, I started and run the Women Who Code branch here in Cincinnati, as well as the Node School branch. So that's kind of me in a nutshell.
0: <laughs> so you, you just name dropped a bunch of technologies. Are you f- primarily you focusing- like that? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Are you primarily focusing on uh, front end stuff or do you do back end as well?
1: So I actually started out as a node engineer. Um, I worked for a company called Modulus that was a platform as a service. And here's another list of technologies. <laughs> there I was working with um, mostly with Node, um, setting up our services, and also through that, then working with Docker a bunch, writing Go, doing Mongo, and um, you know, fun stuff like RabbitMQ for messages. And it really um, made me appreciate the back end a lot. And then we started working with front end stuff, to, make, uh, to open up our API to more users, to make it open source, which got me from moving from Backbone, which we were using for a lot of things, because we, we did, <laughs> and uh, we decided to upgrade to React. So um, I started doing more with React and really appreciating how much could be done with it, which moved me into the Kendo UI world, which brought me more of into the front end and learning Angular and Vue on top of building with React as well. So I, I feel like um, because I work with all three, you know, obviously there's more than three frameworks, but because I work with these uh, three frameworks, it made me realize kind of this universal, like, uni, like <laughs> what's the right word? Basically the seamlessness that can happen across all of these front end frameworks because a lot of them are component-based so um, let let's say that I am a um, an all around developer that's becoming to appreciate the capabilities and the awesomeness of front end now.
0: <laughs> all right, yeah, sounds good. So uh, <laughs> when so just for people I know that's not really technically on topic to what our goals are for this podcast, but for anyone who's listening and getting started in development. Um, since you're, since you've moved over to a lot of front end technologies, would you say that you have to have an artistic knack, um, to, to be a front end developer, or is that just a a wrong mindset?
1: I think that that is, um, I think it could go both ways. I think that that is a wrong mindset, but, um, I would never chastise anybody for thinking so, (laughs) because a lot of what you see online, um, you do want it to be, um, to look nice um and not but most importantly you want it to look a way that is approachable and easy to use for users so i think that um although we definitely want designers in the field um you do not have to be you know jack of all trades for all of those things um and especially i think the biggest i was talking to this the other day i talking about this the other day to some other developers who Like me, don't really have the strongest design sense. Like I CSS is hard, first of all. And like using it in general is hard. And then being able to use it to make pretty things is even harder. And that's why I think it's very important that we have a lot of good designers out there to do that work. But one of the most important things for front-end development, I think, is being able to think logically. Which I think goes, you know, around for both sides of development, or all sides of development, I should say, but being able to think about everyday problems logically in order to solve um, problems for users, like solve the story for users' journey through your applications.
0: Make makes sense. Yeah, no, I've I pers- from a personal experience, I've always been uh, kind of frightened to go strictly front end because of my my poor design skills, but. Uh, I'm I'm always looking for opinions on it to see if I'm uh, got the wrong mentality.
1: I so I completely feel your pain on that because I actually started out um, when I first came into the field selling myself as being able because I could make clean designs like nothing that would someone would be like wow this is artistically moving <laughs> in any way possible. But I thought that to do front end, I had to be able to make things look nice as well. And um, working working at a company where we were making a big product that was going out to people, which was Modulus, where basically you could see all your applications hosted, but I also did do data visualizations like with D3, so people could see their usage of like CPU usage and, um, sorry, and um, storage of things. That is Tosh Magosh, that's Toshi, by the way. She's trying to get in on the podcast, I'm sorry. Um, but um, I realized then working at that company that this is why we have so many different positions in the field of development because there are people whose expertise is making things look good and then also, you know, UX designers that make your app a pleasant experience because you don't get confounded by, you know, something that the developers thought made sense and maybe your everyday person using the application didn't realize was confusing.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. So you mentioned that you work at uh, for uh, on, a, on the Kendo UI team at, at Progress, correct? Yes. Now, what exactly is Kendo UI for, for the listeners that have never heard of it before?
1: Oh, yeah. So Kendo UI is a UI component library. And one thing that impressed me when I first started working for them is that this team at Kendo UI has been making component libraries for over 15 years. So they've heard a bunch of feedback of like, what is needed, how to make things easier. And so they make a bunch of components, everything from like your daily usage of inputs and drop downs, and then make really more complex and robust components like their grid, which is the most popular component, because it does a ton of stuff now, including uh, you can, you can run your whole crud verbs inside of your grid to manipulate your grid and sort it. And then there are things that use the grid, like a scheduler. Um, and then other things like they also do data visualizations like graphs and even like stock chart graphs that are really interactive. And my favoriteest thing <laughs> about them is that they um, have a lot of really, they follow a lot of accessibility guidelines and are compliant with a lot of accessibility like 503 and uh, Y-Aria. And uh, if there are other like any other Vimmers out there, um, this isn't just a Vim thing, but for those who don't like to uh, touch their mouse as much, <laughs> they're all, you can do a uh, keyboard navigation in the components as well. And they just came out with, uh, at the beginning of this year, they came out with, a library specifically for React that doesn't use wrappers. It's true React components. and they have that as well for angular. And then we have a jQuery library and then wrappers for view libraries as well. So um, I always like this for for big teams that um, you know have to have all of these things like the um, accessibility compliance and internationalization. Um, And, you know, support for as they're building up big products, but also for some teams, you know, like consulting teams that have to use multiple libraries. So, you know, one company you work for may have you wanting you to use React and another one may want you to use Vue. You have this library that you understand how to use it, you know, over the whole spectrum. And you can also do the same styling for all of them, including um, bootstrap and material.
0: Now, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe Kendo UI has a part to play in the PWA world, right? <laughs> yes, All right.
1: that is correct.
0: <laughs> so I guess before we get into the part that it plays, uh, do you mind uh, giving me kind of just a high-level overview on what this terminology is, what this means for, for web applications?
1: So the the most high-level way that I like to describe it is basically you're using Modern web technology, taking advantage of modern web APIs to uh, basically make your application more reliable, uh, connectivity and network independent and uh, make it feel better on mobile applications as well. So it's not just mobile, but um, there are a lot of things that you can take advantage of kind of the progressive web app approach to make mobile your web feel much more native on your mobile devices
0: but you just said that it wasn't strictly designed uh, for, for the mobile mindset so you're saying that if uh, was it also designed for something with my computer web browser as well
1: yes and so um, one reason that I think it there was a lot of focus on mobile is for the fact that you usually have a pretty good connection um, when you're on desktop so you're pretty. You're usually like on Wi-Fi or connected to the internet, and don't have to worry about slow network speeds or no network. But at the same time, um, say that you are in a place where you do not have Wi-Fi. You don't do not have a connection. Service workers, which I'm sure we will dig into, uh, allow you the ability to have offline functionality. And um, there has been studies, especially Twitter Lite, has been highly documenting their version or their um, experience making a progressive web app and they have seen um, faster faster load times in the fact of how they're structuring their applications to be more uh, poi-y. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and that one of the things that is attributed to is this um, app shell mentality or the structure of basically creating a loading system that has the basic skeleton of their application be cached? So this is things that the user will see that lets them know that the, your application is there is responding. And that's like your navigation things that will always be on the page like your navigation, maybe a logo, uh, maybe you know a first welcome message of some sort that the user can cache. And as soon as they go to your site the second time, it immediately loads these app shell, um, the app shell model, these components of your app shell, and then waits for the data to load. So this will speed up your interact, like your first paint times for web applications and mobile. Um, but it is it is good to realize that um, it is there are things that will help your desktop experience as well. But right now, the biggest impacts you're going to see are on your mobile sites.
0: So then I have a question. So how does this differ from just uh, me configuring caching in Nginx or Apache or Caddy or any of those uh, web servers like uh, caching media files, um, HTML, JavaScript, things like that?
1: So a lot of it is quite similar. Um, and actually, I think that is one of the great parts. This is nothing this you know isn't exactly completely foreign. It is basically understanding um, that you're using the cache API to put in the files that you want cached um, to give your user a better experience. And I think it's things um, like looking at it in the app shell model way that uh, may be new to how you cache your different resources. So this, this way kind of helps you structure understanding what you're doing with, your, with what you're caching. But you're right that it is quite similar to everything like using um, Nginx and everything to cache certain um, resources that you want for your user.
0: So is it like better optimized on mobile where I know that mobile has uh, this thing where it, if it starts running out of memory, it'll start clearing things out and i think that applies even even stronger when it comes to the browser is it is it you mentioned a service worker and maybe we can get into that but is does it do something different on mobile so
1: well i'm i'm not too familiar with uh with the other caching systems but i can talk um on what's happening with the browsers and the limit cuz with sure. each with each browser you do have a limit and Adi money and um, Mark Cohen have a great uh, blog called Offline Storage for, for for Progressive Web Apps that delves even deeper into it. But it's basically saying um, each each browser will act in a different way. Like some will just give you warnings, um, and like Safari and Edge won't evict your cache, but they do have this limit of you know less than two hundred. Like Edge is I think Edge is dependent on volume, and I don't have those off the top of my head, but I know that Chrome and Firefox have this limit of free space. So it's like if it's less than 6% of free space or less than 10% of free space for Firefox, um, they just make sure that it doesn't get full, basically, and so they they will clear it to make more space. But the Service Worker API... Um, again, this is just JavaScript. It's a JavaScript API, but it um, tries to um, optimize what you're caching and tries to make sure that you're clearing your cache. And um, it it tries it basically tries to set you up with best practices. But there's a lot. I have to disclaimer here: before you use service workers, you should really look into it because there are a lot of different. Things that you should understand before you start caching on users' uh, local storage.
0: So you've thrown out service workers several times uh, as far (laughs) as a term here. So I have to know, what is a service worker?
1: So basically, a service worker um, is a JavaScript file, and they run in between your application and um, the network it's running on if it's available. And the way that I like to think of them is they're kind of like this switchboard operator that your application talks to this JavaScript file and you have to register this file so it knows that it's teamed with your application because it's running separately from your application. And this gives you the advantage of, um, so with things like push notifications, you can have the logic inside of your service worker to say, you know, the user uh, has some information that needs to come down from the network Can you ping the user to let them know that this is happening? And even if your app isn't open, it knows how to ping the user um, to send them that information to see if they're ready for it. Of course, they have to subscribe to it first, so you're not just bombarding (laughs) unwanted uh, information on people. But um, then... Your application also can talk to your service worker even if the network isn't running. So if your user is um, in offline mode and it knows that the service worker is there, it can send information to the service worker and say, when the network becomes available, push this information to um, the network. So it's kind of, it's kind of like this um, agent, this proxy in between um, your application and the network that is handling information between the two, whether or not one or both of them are connected.
0: So so I have a few questions that have kind of spawned out of this. So first of all, sure. how how does the service worker know whether or not you're online or not, first of all?
1: So it's basically pinging to see. Uh, so it, it works with a lot of promises. If you open up a service worker file, one of the first things you notice is that there's a lot of if statements um, so you're basically checking, first of all, to see if service workers are supported um, on the browser that you're on. And then um, you go through and you'll get different promises that are basically saying, like, if if I can ping this information, if I can hit the network, uh, do this. If not, do that. So, again, it's a lot of things that we're used to, like if statements, JavaScript promises. Um, and it's working in a lot of different ways. And some of the first service worker uh, is that you'll see things like um, I think create react app. It's not default anymore, uh, but it exists. And then the view CLI has a PWA template where it, so both of these things. Oh, and angular CLI also has a service worker flag and they all three of those have this uh, kind of default service worker that the first thing they do is um, cache information for you, like some basic, uh, like maybe, you know, your HTML, um, it will cache it for you so that you have offline functionality right out of the bag. And basically, um, it checks to see if it can hit the network. Um, And if not, it serves up the cached files. So, and, and I have to preface that this is, this is quite a deep topic. So, um, there are a lot of really great resources out there. Uh, Matt Gaunt has a service workers and introduction pod, um, blog post out there. And I actually just did, um, a podcast with, um, Patrick Kettner, Matt Gaunt and Jake Archibald on always forward where I, it felt like most of the podcast was like, okay, just be aware that this happens and then also be aware that this happens and then also understand that this happens because it's such a dense topic.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I bet. I mean, this is a new topic too, right? It's, it hasn't been around for that long.
1: Yeah, and I mean, when you look at it, it's basically, um, it's a JavaScript worker. So it's something that we, uh, it's, it's you know, as most new technology um, I'm putting air quotes around new tech- <laughs> technologies since this is not a video. Um, it's things that we, you know, had access to before, um, but we weren't using in this way. So, um, so one thing to realize is, is this, this is all technologies that you're used to using, but now you're learning the new way or a new way to take advantage of it.
0: Yeah, makes sense. So you said that it, it periodically pings the network for connectivity, and you also said that the the whole service worker kind of pois uh, mindset is for mobile. Uh, isn't it expensive to continuously ping a network from a mobile device, both from the aspect of what kind of packets is it pulling back? Is it is it large and and consuming on the data plan? And maybe from... Just operating in the background, and and from a battery perspective.
1: So, battery-wise, there's been a lot of back and forth conversation because, again, touching on um, like Twitter Lite, the whole point of them creating Twitter Lite was to make it, and again, this is like a quote that it was faster, least expensive, and most reliable way to use Twitter. But then um, this, I think I have this pulled up this. uh, I don't want to say his his name wrong because there's umlauts over some letters, (laughs) but um, it's like Mikael Picon. And that article is, is Twitter light really that light for your battery life? And he actually ran some tests to see and um, just checking to see how much of the memory it's using and how much data it's processing. And on many instances, it was... Uh, consuming more of your resources and energy of its native application and so i think there's a lot more that needs to go into um how pwas are approaching this and i like this is definitely one part that i'm not um fully delved into um so I definitely recommend looking into this more as you're creating your own progressive web app and really kind of um, charting information, seeing what's happening. But for this instance, with the Twitter Lite application, it was using more. And, you know, as you're saying, Nick, thinking of just these different pings that are happening, which you can make them, so it's just on request. Um, and so you're basically just checking just on request what's happening um, or sending out a push to uh, like for the network, so you're not just saying like does the network have anything over and over? <laughs> um, but there has been uh, like in that article, there has been shown that there are some more there is more usage, but I think it's all in, I think you can control that. I think that you can go about it in a much more resourceful way. Um, but yeah, I I need to look into that as well. <laughs>
0: No, it's just something to think about. I mean, perform, uh, battery life, uh, network packets, all that stuff is very expensive uh, depending on where you are, right? Yeah. Um, not everyone has one of these bleeding edge devices with the three-day battery life or on this oh, totally. un- unlimited data plan or anything like that.
1: And that's the other thing. Um, and And again, it's something that is important to look into. And I think it's, you know, progressive web apps aren't, there you know a lot of the interest has gone into them in the past year or two but it is again like a work in project process but progress (laughs) um and so there are a lot of things that this will constantly be evolving and um this is this is another reason why i think progressive being one of the first words in progressive web app is so key because um it's kind of a ever-evolving process. And since it's no, it doesn't have like backward breaking changes, it's constantly checking to see if it's supported and you can ever evolve and add more to make your uh, app more pointy. There's um, like things like this where you can constantly be evolving how you're handling, um, you know, and users' network connectivity issues and data issues and just be updating and changing it rapidly um, to support your users.
0: Got it. Um, so when it comes to pause, uh, <laughs> and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep saying it that way. Um, You're committed. <laughs> I, I'm committed on this episode. Um, so when it comes to pause, um, I first heard of them when I was developing hybrid applications. Mm-hmm. So I have to ask, is, is this the new standard towards hybrid? Is, is hybrid shifting? I mean, are you are you familiar with hybrid web applications?
1: Yeah, and uh, what are you using to make your hybrid applications?
0: Nick? So I know that, so the the main one out there is <laughs> Apache Cordova. So okay. a lot of people are developing uh, hybrid applications with Apache Cordova. But I know that with all the buzz around Google and all of these other um, frameworks, uh, like you said, Vue has it baked into the CLI. Angular has it baked into the CLI. Is this the shift? Are people shifting to this approach?
1: I think that there is more attention towards it because if your art and it, like if you think about it with um, and like these are all like flags on Vue and Angular and React, um, but you're going from web to hybrid in a sense. So there's a lot of um, applications out there where they just have the web um, version of it. And with progressive web apps, you're basically progressing your web app to to have better mobile functionality. Um, you know, in a sense, there could be better functionality overall. I wouldn't. I would say that yes, there is a shift happening. Um, I'll I'll like fine. I'll commit to that. I won't be one of those. Uh, I won't just answer. Depends. You know. <laughs> hmm. I think I think there is a shift. Because uh, it's giving you, even with, so to switch off, um, to switch next to um, the app manifest that comes with, that is kind of a POI standard, the app manifest is this JSON file that you add to your application and it's basically metadata uh Letting your application have a icon so that it can be seen in different platforms. Like uh, if users choose to install your application to their device, it should like you have the icon that you can choose to have it show up on their on their home screen um, and different things like making the view full screen and getting rid of the browser Chrome. Um, so it's a step in the direction of making your web app more mobile friendly, so in a sense, and then you know, create React app, the view PWA template, they have that come in um, with those with the with that flag with those choices, because um, it is a step towards making it more of a hybrid. But um, I think that this isn't always. Uh, necessary for your application. So in the question of is this a new shift happening, I think it is, but it doesn't have to be for everybody. And one thing that Raymond Camden always likes to point out is that you don't have to use all of these POIS um, instances or these these things that they're like basically 10, 10 different keywords to the pois. And uh, which I'm happy to go over next if you want. But you don't have to do everything. You don't have to do push notifications and make sure your service worker does this or that or cache everything. You can use piece by piece what you feel is necessary for your application.
0: So then what what are the essentials then that the essential pieces?
1: So and and you will see this in possibly every single talk that you ever see (laughs) at any conference. But um, the 10 words are um, progressive, and, you know, obviously there's a big push of the talk for progressive, Um, and it's basically saying that um, it's progressive enhancements. But also, this isn't specifically one thing they say about progressive, but... Um, There's also a progressive journey that can happen with your user from just like using your application on the web and then deciding to add it to your home screen and then deciding to add it to or to subscribe to your push notification. So, progressively, you're interacting more with your user. And then uh, the next word is responsive. And, uh, you know, I think there's a really big push for responsiveness, you know, has been for many years. So that no matter, because we're all on so many different devices, and so many people are going to your web application um, from their mobile device specifically, and I can't tell you how many applications I've been to where I can't even get over to the right-hand side of a website because their site isn't responsive. And that's just, um, I'm in a different mindset because I'm in this world, but I can't imagine users that you know go to the, a website that isn't responsive on their cell phone and they're like what am i doing wrong <laughs> you know yeah um i feel you good yeah, it's it's kind of a it's well uh the next word is connectivity independent and so this is again where service workers come into play to give you basically um to think about people like you were saying earlier that you know don't have LTE or i mean i've uh was it i can't remember where i saw that you know talks of 5g 6g coming up but um there are so many places yes even in the united states that do not have great connectivity or you know do have a low quality network so connectivity independent is a big um concern or a big focus with uh pause and then the next is app-like and um This is also thinking of the app shell model where, you know, you constantly have something on the screen to let the user know what's happening. Because, you know, when you open up a, uh, you know, an app, something displays on the screen, whether you're online or off. So kind of having that same um, feeling and structure as apps, the app shell gives you that. And also your app manifest gives you kind of those full screen capabilities to make it feel like an app. And and feel free. I'm still. I'm only like four words in, so (laughs) feel free to interrupt me at any time. (laughs) Um, But the next word is fresh, and that's basically concentrating on the fact that keeping everything up to date, um, and that that works like with your service worker, kind of like an update process that they have. And then the big thing that I always like to hit on is safe, which is one of the other focuses. And that's because this always has to serve pods always have to be served over HTTPS. Um, especially for the fact of when I talk about service workers, you're basically putting something that, you know, in between your app and your network that's intercepting all of your network requests and manipulating them. And then, you know, manipulating your application, which sounds pretty scary. Like I feel like this is something that people would worry about, <laughs> And that's why it has to be served over a secure network. Um, or you know, you can test it on localhost, but when you have it in production, it has to be served over HTTPS. Um, and then discoverable. And I think a lot of people worry about this when they go away from native applications, is you know not having it possibly show up in the app store. And um, in order to kind of make it still discoverable, there is, um, it's identifiable as an application because of the W3C manifest and service worker registration scope, uh, and it allows search engines to find it as an app. And Ed- Edge um, has added the ability to make progressive web apps, uh, taking advantage of Electron, and make them, you know, have them in their store. So you will see now that uh, PWAs are showing up in the Edge stores, which is pretty cool. Um, and then the last three words, I'll just try to go over quickly and it's, uh, re-engaging and that basically, uh, lets your users re-engage with them through things like push notifications, but also having it on your home screen. So when they have to go, when they want to open up their phone and see your application again, they're able to re-engage with it quickly. And which leads us to the next word, which is installable, um, basically, you can add it to your home screen just from a click on your website instead of having to, you know, go search through the app store. And one last word is linkable. And this makes it so that you can easily share um, your application through a URL. And so, again, you don't need to install because, again, with data, you know, small data plans or data plans that you have to pay as you use them, you don't have to use that um the data to install a full application onto your mobile device, which is nice. Whew. That's all of them. Was that 10? <laughs> that was 10.
0: That's a lot of, uh, what
1: lot did I make it feel like five or something?
0: <laughs> no, that, I didn't know. I didn't realize there was that much for when it came to, to pause um, <laughs> as far as the essentials go.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's basically, um, so those are like the, the keywords, I guess you could say to a point, um, and it's it's kind of just this mentality around pois of, of what of what your pois should aspire to be in a way. Um, I'm a huge standards fan, so to in my mind these are kind of like the poise standards, uh, and I just think it's it's one of the things that it sounds like a lot, but yeah, it's good to remember. All of the things on that list are so user focused so um, it's basically trying to make a web application um, in a way that you're trying you're remembering to make it more usable and uh, less stressful to your user
0: yeah that, that sounds good so I mean we're, <laughs> we're just about over time here um, so I just oh, wanted sorry. to give you um, a chance to share any last minute uh, words of wisdom or advice. I know we didn't get a chance to really talk about how Kendo fits into this, into this, uh, whole, whole, uh, poi mindset, but that, that leaves us an opportunity for a future episode for sure. But oh, yay. <laughs> uh, any, uh, any last minute, uh, words of wisdom.
1: Well, um, I will say that when you use the Kenda UI components, there are uh, you don't have to worry about responsiveness yourself. We take care of that for you, which is always a nice hurdle to not have to go over. And I wanted to uh, give you and uh, the and the listeners one other good resource, and it's actually a new resource coming out from Abraham Williams. Um, you can find him at Abraham on Twitter, and he is also a Google developer expert um, that is focused a lot on uh, progressive web apps. He's coming out with a new guide to progressive web apps, and again, you can follow him at, uh, at Abraham on Twitter to find out when he's releasing all of that. Um, and uh, him and Pearl both work for Bendy Works, and you can see them on the road talking about progressive web apps more. And... Me as well. I will be at Fluent talking about progressive web apps this year, too.
0: Awesome. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great JavaScript conference. Um, if if somebody wanted to get in contact with you after this episode, what's the best way to do it? Are you on Twitter?
1: Well, my phone number is... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can find me at Twitter at um, TZmanics. That's T-Z-M-A-N-I-C-S. And my DMs are open. I'm always i um, more than happy to help anybody uh, talk about progressive web apps. And also, if you're ever looking, if you're an underrepresented group that wants to be a speaker, um, I would love for you to reach out to me if you want any help on speaking and CFP submissions.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And then I definitely want you back on the show to, to get into the deep, deep dive of Kendo uh, yes, on a future please. episode. So <laughs> we'll save that for a future time, though. And I, I appreciate you being on this episode, um, Tara.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Nick. It's always oh, a pleasure.
0: Definitely. Now you have a good starting point when it comes to progressive web applications based on Tara's feedback. Tara had mentioned this in the episode, and I want to further reiterate this. If you're in an underrepresented group and you want to speak in an event, definitely reach out to Tara because this is a great opportunity to further advance your developer career. You'll get your name out there. People will will recognize you. Um, And there's no negative that comes out of this. I'd like to give a special shout out to DigitalOcean, who is the sponsor of the Polyglot Developer Podcast. In case you're unfamiliar with DigitalOcean, it's by far the easiest cloud platform to run and scale your applications. DigitalOcean has a variety of products ranging from object storage to scalable compute services, all of which having a very affordable and predictable pricing model. In case you're unaware, the Polyglot developer is actually hosted on DigitalOcean and it has been for several years now. If you'd like to give DigitalOcean a try and see why I like it so much, I actually have a promotional code to give out. It'll get you $100, which will actually get you quite far when it comes to the services that you can get. In your web browser, go ahead and navigate to do.co slash polyglot, and that will go ahead and get you the promotional value when you sign up. And again, that's $100 and that'll get you quite far. If you have a topic that you'd like to hear about on a future episode, or maybe you'd even like to be a guest on a future episode, let me know about it. So you can reach out to me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at N-R-A-B-O-Y, uh, which is N-R-A-B-O-Y, which is my first initial last name. Or you can go ahead and send me an email. So go ahead and send me an email at contact at polyglotdeveloper.com. And at which point we can go ahead and figure something out and, and make some future great content for the Polyglot Developer Podcast. And that concludes episode number 18.